Oh no, it's a very different animal. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Now, you could do it closet ball style, but I think you'd probably get sued. me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, it's 7.47. Oh, I forgot to put this on the agenda, but we normally have a musical break. Karen, do you have a favorite song that I can play for 29 seconds? Favorite song? I got brain just like goes in the world. <laughs> <laughs> a favorite song? asking me if I have a favorite song. The first song that has come to mind, if this was an improv exercise, and let's face it, guys, this whole thing has felt like an improv exercise. Even though Taylor was so structured and organized, I still feel like I'm in an improv exercise. It's not your fault. You were wonderfully prepared. Um, the first song that came to my mind was Gravity by Sarah Bareilles. Oh, that's a nice one. Love the Tokyo Closet Bubble Podcast fun for one and all Loving life and standing tall Tokyo Closet Ball Hello, good evening, and konbanwa to the Tokyo Closet Ball Podcast. Tonight, I am Taylor, and with me co-hosting is the one and only profound lover of pangolins, Alex. Hello, Alex. How are you this evening? Hello, darling. Marvelous. How are you? I am great. I am fantastic. I am a, a person wearing clothes. Excellent. That's sometimes the best we can ask for in these days. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> We've all got all our clothes on. <laughs> wow. And that voice you heard is our very special guest, a thespian, singer, and a computer genius, the one and only Karen Polly. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thank you, Taylor. How are you this evening? I'm fine. I'm fine. A bit rushed today as the work I was doing overran and the chicken wouldn't cook fast enough. But here I am and everything's fine. <laughs> oh, don't call your husband a chicken. He's quite brave. <laughs> poor, poor Marty. Yeah, he's fine. He's hiding down in his basement, ignoring the fact that I'm taking too long to do things like dinner. <laughs> hiding in his man cave. Absolutely. Charming introductions. Have we been charming? Oh, yes. I think we've been charming enough. <laughs> Talk of chicken and man caves. <laughs> and tonight we're going to share with you a pleasant, a wonderful, an engaging piece of media that we've been working on by the name of Natural Shocks. Can we talk a little bit about what is Natural Shocks? Yeah, I'm sure we can. Um, <laughs> so Natural Shocks. Natural Shocks is a play by an American playwright called Lauren Gunderson. It's a one-woman show, which is kind of fascinating, given how many shows tend to have lots of characters who are not women. But this time we have one woman who gets to speak for 60 whole minutes. Wow, women speaking? I've never heard of that in media. This is amazing. It's utterly fascinating. Yes, it actually can happen. I'm giving them a woman who never shuts up. But, uh, <laughs> she is strange, that. Not too strange in my life. But yes, often when we're dealing with plays and the theatre, it's not that common. So mm. I'm quite excited that we're doing a one-woman show. And Which I think it's something like um, for TIP, um, where we're usually uh, Tokyo, that's Tokyo International Players who are putting on the production. 
and there is a tendency to go for things that are older perhaps where um because the rights are cheaper or free um that's the problem is that the older things are dominated by men well yes i mean if you go really far back if we go back to the time of shakespeare he wasn't allowed to put anyone who wasn't a man on his stage mm. so of course um he didn't want to have too many female driven stories in some ways because of who was representing them that makes sense um yeah i think for tip though there is this idea that we need to do something more commercial so if you only put one mm. actor on the stage you've got something that's much smaller yeah and in community theater audiences tend to come from friends and families of actors and people who know the production team that is one of the descriptions of community theater right as opposed mm. to professional theater if you're in professional theater and you look out at the audience you probably won't know anybody there but in this sort of thing you're expecting for people to recognize some of the members of the audience so it's difficult to put on shows that have very small casts mm. um, so a lot of the work you know the work i've done in the past has been big shows so I worked with Alex on um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, a large cast of about, mm. you know, 37 people. Um, it's a very different thing. Mm, yeah. <sighs> so it's a very different thing, right, to put on a show of that size. And we're aware that the key characters of shows like that, you know, our child catcher, our Caractacus or whatever, those sort of male roles. And we see it in the other stuff I've done with Alex as well. Alex and I were both in a production of Sweeney Todd. I mean, it's called Sweeney Todd, even though Mrs. Lovett has more lines. Really? Interesting. Mrs. Lovett has a third of the lines in the show and sings for about an hour. Um, Angela Lansbury was the first Mrs. Lovett, and she only agreed to do it because she's got a massive role in the show. But there are very few women in the show, right? There's only Mrs. Lovett, who is a very large role, and then the beggar woman and Joanna. They're both very small mm. in comparison to the other roles. And again, not as many... Uh, female identifying roles in it mm. as there are for the male. That's something I noticed in auditions too. Um, about two thirds of the people auditioning are women and there's just so few female roles that all of these female actresses just have to uh, fight against each other. Whereas the male actors, they have room to support each other because there's room for almost all of them. Yeah, it depends on the show. If you're putting on um, a show with a lot, so a show like Tommy, which Tokyo International Players did, again, a very male-heavy cast. There were not that many men come out to audition. Um, if you look at something like Cinderella, which we didn't get to put on stage, we had almost 50 women wanting to play the role of Cinderella. Um, and nowhere near as many people wanting to play the role of Prince. And I will say that sometimes some of the women would like to play a role like the Prince, but in these sort of established musicals, we are not allowed to change gender of characters like that. Mm -hmm. So even in something like Chitty, if you want a woman to be the turkey farmer, mm -hmm. she's playing it as a man. In that case, they yeah, allowed yeah. that. But in some other shows, they won't even allow that. And it gets, I think it's quite a gray area now as people become more aware of identity to be able to say that for an audition. So I find some of the things given when they were written and given who is responsible for them come across to me as quite, well, short-sighted and old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was so shocked about the turkey farmer example. In the text of the play, they never say him, they never say man or husband or brother. There's nothing in the play that says this person has to be male. 
but just because of the right owners, we had to dress up that poor woman in a hat and overalls. That's right. And other characters, some of them only have a pronoun mentioned once. Mm-hmm. And they've got yeah. titles, the toy maker, the child catcher. Why does it matter? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Why does it matter? But we have to go with what's there. And I did go through the text looking at pronouns to try and see if there was any way I could get around some of these things. But um, it, it's tricky. And sometimes people then think that we're not trying hard enough. You know, why are your princes not able to be um, something different? But we are supposed to work within the license that we have and try to put on the show that was created by the playwright or by the composer. Um, it's a bit different. I mean, Alex, you write so you can decide yourself and you can give permission to people to change these things. Mm, if it's absolutely. Because Alex, you were the writer of Dr. Sebastian, is that correct? But you yes. were not the director. I um, did, yeah. Mm. What did you think about the directing decisions made in that play? Oh, I loved them. Um, it's very difficult not to love um, <laughs> a play in which there's a dog barking away and you've got <laughs> good old, um, what's he called, Sire's husband, is it Grant? Yes. Grant. Grant, that's right. And barking away and doing his best German Shepherd impression. It's, I, I thought... Uh, some of the choices that he made with levels and things in the, within the Zoom call and uh, camera angles and things were very good, yeah. And things that I wouldn't have thought about myself. That's so cool, yeah. I really mm. like to see how different actors uh, bring their different twists and everything. All yeah, right. Definitely. So that brings us to what is natural shocks? Do we have a long, 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 log line? Am I saying that right? Log line. Log line. What's a log line? Yeah. A hard line. Let's make a hard line on the log line. <laughs> You're oh. making these up now. You're just making uh, up every word is made up. That's how words work. <laughs> that is how words work. Um, okay, so. Maybe I, I don't need alcohol. Maybe this is just how I really am. <laughs> That's a scary thought. Jesus Christ. Fuck me. <laughs> So I assume you're looking for some description of the piece of theatre that we're putting on. And I will say it's a stage reading that we're doing. So mm. in case people come expecting to see a fully realised play. But it's about a woman who is trapped in her basement and she's waiting out a tornado. Okay, so the character is called Angela. And then she talks to us. She's an unreliable narrator and she reflects on her lifetime. And she talks about her trauma. Um, it's based on Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be, which I do think you two should read. I know that you were keen on reading something from the play, but given the rights, we're not able to do that. But since mm -hmm. it is based on To Be or Not To Be, and since Shakespeare is in the public domain, I would, yeah, I would like to hear the two of you try the very famous soliloquy from Hamlet. Oh, my good Lord. Are you sure? <laughs> Maybe. I... It's a possibility. I am from Oregon. I was cast in three Shakespeare plays before I graduated high school. My first play was The Tempest in third grade. So I can do this, totally. <laughs> I believe you totally can. And I mean, come on, Alex, you're from the UK. We're supposed to just sound like Shakespeare, no matter what we say. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and if I'd just like to get my experience in that, I was Joseph in our school production of the Nativity play. And my mum was very proud. <laughs> okay, it's, it's not quite in the same league as the Tempest that Dylan <laughs> just mentioned, but he didn't say which role he played in the Tempest. Oh, Taylor, what was it? 
I think his name started with a B. And I have, <laughs> I have a sword. I got to play with a toy sword. That's what I remember. <laughs> it's good. It's good. And when you're that old, that's all that matters. <laughs> Definitely. Who wants to start? <laughs> um, gosh. Um, do you want to do a drama, dramatic reading or a comedy reading? <laughs> um, all right. Why don't I pick a bit for you and then you can pick a bit for me? Oh, um, sure. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Let's. All right. Should we give it a go? Oh, yes. Whenever oh, yeah. you're ready, ladies, gentlemen, and beyond, please welcome your ears for the Shakespearean talents of Alex. <laughs> Karen's got to judge who does it best. <laughs> to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks. That flesh is air too, tis a consummation, devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep. To sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. Hooray, great job. For <clears throat> <sighs> those who hear the whips and scorns, their oppressor's wrongs, the proud man consumely, the pang displeased, someone spelled that wrong, the prangs <laughs> of law, the law's delay, the insolence of office and the spurns, the patient merit thou unworthy takes, when he himself might he quench makes with the blah, when he himself might he bequest make with a bare bodkin, Oh, he would perhaps the bear to grunt the sweat under his wary brow, wary life. Oh, but that dread of something after death, that undiscovered country from whose born no travel returns puzzles the will. What makes us rather bear these ills? We have then fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience doth make cowards of us all. Thus the naive hue of revolution, it sickens o'er the pale cast of thoughts. And enterprises of great pith and moment within regard their current turn awry and loose the name of action. Yay. <laughs> you. Thank you, thank you. My headshots are in the back. <laughs> Well, you just got through it. <laughs> we did. <laughs> oh, you did great. Did you have fun? <laughs> I did enjoy that more than I thought I was going to. <laughs> oh, no. Taylor gave us lots of energy. Lots of energy, yes. Lots of energy. Energy's always good. Mm. <laughs> yes.
So yeah, I know Shakespeare can be very difficult. Obviously, the words are not what you're expecting and mm. words that we don't necessarily use anymore. I got the distinct impression you didn't know what a bear bodkin was. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like a sex thing. Yeah, it's a diger, so I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> good lord <laughs> <laughs> you know so yes it's a dagger yeah. ah. <laughs> it's, a it's a beautiful piece okay so to be or not to be to exist or not to exist okay so, this so how does she um how does the writer use this within natural shocks so the character of angela really likes hamlet mm. and really likes that hamlet is logically going through this sort of existential thing so hamlet is realizing that just being isn't always taking action mm -hmm. um the writer angela doesn't necessarily think it's about suicide you could think that it is and it certainly has that leaning to be or mm -hmm. not to be and all the things that he doesn't want to bear so it talks about the difficulties of life and I mean, she also uses parts of it in a lighthearted kind of way. The idea of a band name or something like that to try to cut across the drama, because it can get very heavy if we spend all our time looking at things like this. That concept of how we suffer, the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. You know, this concept that life is difficult and that we have to make choices and take action. Yeah. It's Oh, it's absolutely lovely. I mean, I really like um, the speech. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the way she uses it in the in the reading is so much more. Uh, how do you say, like contemporary? Like it's she sort of throws in these little jokes and quips here and there, and it just feels really natural, like something you'd hear from just friends talking to each other. I like that. Yes, yes, it's more mm. like that. It's not supposed to be done in Shakespeare voice. You know, it's not like you get to it and go, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. So no, it's not meant to be like over the top dramatic, some mm. idea of what we thought Shakespeare was supposed to sound like when we were 10. <laughs> in school. And maybe not so for you, Taylor, but in the UK, there's an awful lot of Shakespeare taught, I think. Um, now, you said you were in The Tempest. What age were you in The Tempest? About 10. Yeah, yeah. Which is fantastic, right? To be exposed to something like The Tempest at about 10 years old. I think I was 12 or 13 before I was mm -hmm. reading Shakespeare. And we started with Romeo and Juliet. So yeah, assumptions, assumptions that teachers make. And it's difficult in a school when you get to 16 and 18 where you only pick three subjects. And before that, you were doing 10 to 12. They mm -hmm. all might think you're going to do their subject going on if you were any good at it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's completely different than America. Like I meet friends who are like just about to get their uh, bachelor's degree, then immediately switch to something else. Or, you know, a lot of the English teachers in Japan, oh, they have a degree in business or degree in chemistry or whatever. Like it's so uh, popular in America to just, you know, have this sort of buffet of vocations. Yes, I still don't really understand the American concept of majors and minors and it comes into the Japanese language and I get really confused and I'm asked, you know, what was your major? I'm going, do you mean the subject I studied? <laughs> <laughs> there was no minor. That, that didn't or, happen. Or what key I studied it in. <laughs> yeah, so no minor. So, and in some ways, I mean, it works, right? But being able 
to wait until you're older, I think is better. I was very young. I mean, I was, I went to school at four. I was the youngest in my school when I joined because of when my birthday falls. Mm. Uh, When I went to university, I was picking my university courses when I was 16, 17. You know, I just turned 18 when I started. So yeah, I was young, too young, I think in some ways to be Mm. deciding what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Because hey, who knows that even now? Uh, my retirement fun. plan is to become a uh, trophy husband. <laughs> Why is that going for you? Is it How's working? that going? Yeah, is it working out? Um, we're still in uh, uh, pre-production. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever makes you happy. And happy is another theme that comes up in this play. Mm. This concept of pretending to be happy and what it means to present happiness to the outside world. Mm -hmm. So Natural Shocks is about domestic violence and abuse. It talks about trauma, it talks about gun violence. And one of the fascinating things about our character is how at the start, how much she wants to present what she thinks society wants and how much that is about, come on, come on, get happy. And that Mm. song appears through the show, the Judy Garland song. so yes, happiness and the pretense. And I think that, unfortunately, whilst I would love to think as I get older, that we can be more of ourselves and that the world would be less judgmental of who you are, I have found that with the social media age, it's even more so. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you find that, but this idea that you have to pretend to be a certain thing in order to fit in and you have to do it like on Instagram and on TikTok and all over the place as opposed to just being who you are. And I know some people attempt to show a more true reflection of themselves, but even that I think is just very difficult. Especially in that medium. And you're at risk of people calling you moany or whiny because it does look really out of place in, in amongst all those pictures of people having lovely holidays and Hashtag, I'm so blessed, got a mimosa. So yeah, I think it fits in very well with that. I noticed a lot how she was, and I guess that's where the unreliable relator comes in because she keeps saying, it wasn't that bad. And it's later on she peels back. Yes. And says, actually, it was that bad. Yeah. Yeah, so how she presents herself to me is fascinating. So mm. some of the things she says, so when she talks about what she's doing and she says things like chicken and fish and, um, you know, her decisions, she's trying to make things that she thinks the normal, whatever she thinks normal run-of-the-mill people would be doing and choosing from, she mentions Chick-fil-A, which is interesting to me, given their reputation in America. Mm. And again, what that says and how you're portraying yourself is I'm just like a normal person. I'm just like, you whatever that is because we don't really know (laughs) for the person that we're speaking to Mm. yes when i was reading the script something about the description of angela they said she could be any kind of woman from any kind of background and i kind of get that of her yeah basically she was just trying to be friendly and neighborly and she really wants to be liked by the people listening to her yes yes she can be any woman um The age our actress is younger um, than the age that I get when I'm reading it because there's some time things mentioned. So it mentions like 15 years and three years. So when you start adding those things up, I mean, she says she's probably 40, maybe younger, maybe older, but it's definitely a person who's been in a relationship for a long time. Mm. 
you know. And that comes across the, in the script. Yeah. And one of the nice things about doing a stage reading, you can be a little more flexible on mm -hmm. things like who you cast and the type. I'm just interested in the person who can perform this well and who reads it well, which our actress Georgia Ryder does. Um, so very happy to have her. But yes, it does say she can be any race from any region with any accent. The accent thing, now, I will say we are going with the natural accent of the performer. But I will say, coming from my part of the world, sometimes when I read lines from the play, I sound really stupid. So I can't say you all, for example. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't just roll off my tongue. <laughs> it just I y'all. It's probably one of my, the easiest words to say. It includes everyone. I love it. Y'all. <laughs> y'all. No, yeah. I can't do it either. I would say one. Y'all. 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 It's just wrong. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> we just don't say it at home. <laughs> no. So it's a brilliant word and it's inclusive, I agree. Mm. Um, but it's just, it's tricky now. Um, so yes, we can I can tell when I read it and from how it's written and fast paced that it was written by an American. Yeah. Some playwrights stuff feels very British. I know we all think Shakespeare is, but that's just because it's, you know, 400 years old and mm. old English and stuff. But even we go back to Alex, the stuff that Alex writes when I read it also comes across as a playwright from the UK. It yeah. does not sound American to me. Um, some of the settings, the situations. Mm -hmm. so. A lot of the vocabulary. Yes. Mm. Words. But yes, our Angela is just any woman. This is mm. just a story of a woman. And this is just a story. We can all want to present ourselves in a certain way. And we can all end up in situations like domestic abuse situations. It's not about being a certain type of person or... Mm. being from a certain place. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, Georgia and her process in the production? What kind of, what was it like working with her? Working with Georgia, so far we have been working online. So I haven't got to see her in person in a room, right? Which is kind of tricky. I mean, we're looking at each other now mm -hmm. in Zoom. Now <laughs> I'm looking at two people that I know, which is helpful. Georgia and I did work on Cinderella, which was canceled. Um, so I have met her in person, which is definitely helpful because the Zoom thing is not the most natural. So, so far, Georgia has been doing character work and um, world of the play work. So when you get a play, <laughs> any play, a piece of text, you have to analyze the text, right? It's um, pretty important. So that's what we've been doing first. And because we're not in person and because we're in this sort of setup, it's a good time to just read through the lines, to understand all of the language and to start creating the character and the world. Creating the world in the play for a stage reading is kind of tricky because a lot of times when you create the world, you use things like signs, you use the set, you use your costume design, you use a lot of other things to make the audience aware very quickly of where something is set. We will be doing some things, but we can't do as much as a fully realized play. The next thing for Georgia is physicality. So we have an in-person rehearsal at our space on Saturday afternoon. Yay, our first one with all our COVID measures in place. Our wow, real ready. human contact, <laughs> off the lens. Mm, mm, mm. 
real humans, but unfortunately, like real humans, really far spread out in the room because we can't come too close to each other. <laughs> real humans following very strict guidelines. But yes, lovely to have real humans in a space. And the next thing she's going to do is work on the physicality of the character. Because even though the character stands behind a music stand in our reading, they still have physical things that they do to show who they are. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting, you mentioned the description of Angela. One of the things that stands out to me about the description of Angela is it talks about the audience coming to emphasize with the character, maybe not starting there. So there's some interesting stuff, even from the very beginning about how we judge other people. Mm -hmm. You know, judging people for wearing red lipstick and stuff, you know how it is. I would never judge anyone for their lipstick. <laughs> how um, how are you? Do you think you're going to get that sort of across from the very beginning in a staged reading? And how is that? I mean, you mentioned briefly. I mean, how it's a bit different from a from a normal play. Yes, it is a bit different from the normal play. Now, mm. in some ways. Although it's a stage reading, I am still going to use aspects of her physicality and mm -hmm. maybe little things in what she wears to help with this. Ah. I am still going to do that. So we have to follow our strict rules of what we were mm -hmm. sent, but it's not like she has to do it in stage blacks. Okay. That's so good. at the same time, it won't have the same level of costuming that I might do for another show. And actually, I was being really careful not to get too carried away with visuals for this show. Mm. So before I saw what the license was like, I was concerned that sometimes in a stage reading, there can be no elements of costume. It's no, the stage directions are red. There's no sound effects. There's nothing like that. So I was concerned about me starting to rely on visual or other elements to present the world, as opposed to me thinking about, no, this is, this is the actor. What can they do? Um, so I was careful because I was asked recently, had I any images of what I thought Angela was like? And my response was, uh, no. <laughs> and I've done no costume work. Normally, you know, I'm for a lot of my things, I spend a lot of time thinking about costumes and how mm. my cast should look and whether I should stick them in bright orange shirts and stuff, Alex. <laughs> I liked your orange shirt. That was a fabulous shirt. <laughs> I liked the shirt too. So yes, I spend time thinking a lot about those elements, about color elements, and I mm. haven't done as much because of the type of work. What I have got to do is spend an awful lot of time with the text and thinking about it as words. So imagining mm. what it would be like if it was just audio. Now, I, thankfully, I have more than that because I've got an actor in the space, which is amazing, <laughs> but just thinking in those terms as well. What kind of considerations would you make when you know there's only going to be 12 people in the audience? Well, in, in some ways for me as a director, not much changes, whether I'm putting someone. So as a director, when I put someone on stage, even if I put them in front of one person, I have to do it in such a way as that they are safe and that they can trust the process and that they feel like they can perform. So whether it's one person, 12 people or 2000 people, I still want my actor to feel like they have a solid performance. A small audience does have challenges. It has challenges if you're expecting the audience to interact. This is a one woman show. Some people, when they're reviewing it, use phrases like part stand up, right? And I think one of the reasons they do that in stand up, you are talking directly to the audience. Normally in a play, you are not. So even though 
you beautifully read the soliloquy from Hamlet to be or not to be, he is on stage by himself, right? So who is he speaking to? And, and sometimes people say, oh, is it the audience? No, in some ways it's not, it's internal. That's a very internal thing, which is why when Kenneth Branagh did this in his movie, he did this speech in front of a mirror so you could see very clearly that the person he was speaking to was himself. You know, let's hit us over the head with that just in case we've missed it. Big mirror in front of Kenneth Branagh. Um, so for a play subtle. like this, it's very subtle. So for a play like this, who is she speaking to? And a lot of times, actually, in this case, she is speaking to the audience. She's not speaking to the universe, to some sort of God, to herself, because there are lines. I mean, when she's talking, she says things like, you know, anyway, I'm Angela. This is my basement. You know, my New Year's resolution to work out is going well. Thanks for asking. How's yours? Mm. Right. So she's definitely not. It could all be in her head. Let's face it, to be or not to be, existential crisis. It could all be in her head. That's fine. But at times it feels like she's very much talking to the people in front of her, the people that she thinks are judging. So when you have a small audience, to get back to the point, which I you know ramble away from all the time, <laughs> their reactions are harder to gauge. So when you tell a joke in front of 12 people, you know, if you tell it in front of a thousand people, there might be at least two people there who get it right. Well, we don't know. And sometimes if you tell a joke in front of a small group, if a few of them think it's amazing and they start laughing, everyone else will join in because of uh, pressure. Mm. So audiences tend to respond mm -hmm. to the performer, but they also respond to each other. That's why I find Zoom theater so difficult because when you've got no audience, and you've got nothing that's reacting or interacting. They're a massive part of your performance, right? So removing them is tricky. So in this case, this is hard. This is one person for 60 minutes. So this is a, you know, a, it's a great role to be given, but it's a difficult one. And yeah, how this small audience responds. And also we are Tokyo international players. So listen to the speed at which I talk. This play moves along at that sort of speed. But we may have many people in the audience. And when I say many, you know, if six of them are not native English speakers, they, of course, will be delayed in their response to the text as well. Yeah. So it, it's definitely tricky. Um, I, in some ways, prefer larger audiences, but only because they're more distant to you. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing something in a small, intimate space, the audience is right there, right now. My stage manager is putting them back a bit. So they're not going to be right there. Some of the shows I've done in Tokyo in these small spaces, you could practically poke them in the front row. They're that close to you. Oh, yeah. And that can be very distracting if you're performing. You know, mm. if you think of bigger theaters, um, Tip uses Sun Mall sometimes. There's a big gap between the stage and the front row and stuff. And you can feel that you're in the world of the play and not in the world of the audience. So I find mm -hmm. smaller things sometimes harder. Um, I imagine when you're doing Closet Ball, Mm -hmm. but it's quite a small space and you've got people, yeah people in your face <clears throat> you know um so that's very much like a glitter in their face confetti in their face yep. you leave the, the you leave the venue with little presents on your body <laughs> <laughs> yes so for the performers there though they get a very immediate reaction so with something like closet ball you know what that is when you're going in mm. 
right? When you go to see a new stage reading or a new play that you haven't read, you don't know what to expect. So you don't necessarily know what your response is going to be. And I don't know what the response of all the audience is going to be either, mm. which is one of the exciting things about it. I don't want to, I want to see what the response is. But it's, um, yeah, I think the small space thing can be tricky. I think small audiences can be as well. But I do have a lighting designer. So Xander is doing lights in yeah. the show. So Xander's doing lights, which means it will still be quite theatrical. And whenever you have lights mostly on the person, you know, who's performing, then the audience is dimmer and darker mm. and not so clear. I have had to do shows before in normal, you know, like a normal room where I can see every, you know, bored reaction of the audience right in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, come on, people's faces. I can say nothing. My face is so expressive. Everything's there. So yeah, <laughs> I like it when you're so close, you can actually see their eyes rolling while you speak. I'm like, oh, I'm that bad. <laughs> this is it right <laughs> and those things like when you're being yourself and that's a response to you there, there's ways of dealing with that and let's face it you deal with it using humor and cutting through what they're doing it's great but in a performance like this in this reading the actor has to continue with what's on the page no matter yeah. what happens out there right? <laughs> <laughs> they have to stay true to the text they can't just ad lib it or make it up and they can't heckle the audience because it's, that's not how this works no that's not how it works <laughs> all right next item is artist spotlight lauren gunderson who is she? What is she? What is this creature that God hath bequeathed on earth? Is that Shakespeare? Yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare. I don't Place know. Was it in iambic pentameter? I'm not convinced. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now this part of my notes are not quite as good. Personal, Shakespeare stuff, style, style continued, <laughs> feminism, queerness, and open. Those are our seven items. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, why, don't you, um, why don't you tell us a bit about Lauren Gunderson, Karen? <laughs> do you want to? Do you want me? Do you want me to ask you questions, or do you want to just? <laughs> well, I mean, oh, it's a really interesting question. You know, what do you say about a playwright? I mean, she is considered to be the most produced playwright in America at the minute. When you say most produced, what exactly does that mean for the lay people in the audience? So it's when you write a play, like if you write something like Natural Shocks, not the visuals going to help because this is a podcast, but my play <laughs> is in my hand. So when you write something like Natural Shocks, you get it published. So this one is published by Dr Dramatist Play Service. I would call them DPS, which is why I struggle so much trying to say their name. So you have your piece published. I have it on paper and then people go to that service and they license the rights to perform something. Lauren Gunderson's works have been, the production of them has happened more times than any of the other modern playwrights. And it's usually, it is conceivable that Shakespeare is performed more in America at the minute than performances of these plays. And that's because there is no cost to performing Shakespeare regarding rights Shakespeare kind of died around, oh, I don't know, 400 years ago. It's in the public domain. So for plays that you have to get a license to perform, this playwright, hers are the most produced, which is a fascinating achievement. Um, 
and she's only 37 years old. So, wow, it's amazing. It is amazing. And also she's a living playwright, which is pretty amazing as well. Well, that sounds like mm. an awful thing to be saying, but a lot of the plays that are produced a lot are from playwrights who are not. Um, so if you think about the importance of being earnest, it's not just Shakespeare. There are other great classic plays that are produced a lot because of the situation of them being in the public domain. But Lauren Gunderson's work is wonderful. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, what do you think of her style? We've mentioned before, she's a fast talker, very uh, rat-a-tat-tat. It feels like you're listening to a uh, machine gun. How does the speed of her language affect the um, feeling of the play that we're watching? Well, it's naturalistic, right? So if we're thinking about how we would just speak to someone else, we don't always spend our time speaking in slow, beautiful delivery. It sounds, it sounds false. It sounds unnatural. It doesn't sound easy to connect to. So fast. Oh, is that why I don't have a boyfriend yet? <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to comment on that. <laughs> and I will say that in a nice slow backing away from the camera voice. <laughs> so piercing, piercing affects lots of things, right? So if you've got characters that speak quickly, if I speak quickly, it can make me sound articulate. It could also make me sound nervous. It just depends on why it's written. So it makes her character sound intelligent. This is someone who is a professional. They're in home insurance of all the interesting occupations that they could be in. They discuss probability and statistics at length. Mm. They also talk about Hamlet. All of these things suggest a certain amount of learning. So this ability to use words quickly can tell you something about your character. It just depends. As I say, sometimes speaking fast can be about anxiety but it can also be about excitement. So a lot of the time, especially in something that's 60 minutes long, you have to keep changing the pacing and you have to keep changing how you use the language. If you see how she's written it out on the page, she's got all these breaks and pauses. So whilst it can feel at times like it just keeps rolling over you like the storm that is coming, that isn't always the case. There are times where she reflects and time where she pauses. And there's some parts of it which are very excitable and then in contrast, when you get to the end, she goes calm and she goes cold, like the eye of the storm and talks to you directly. So how, the way I pierce and use my voice, the way an actor does it, is another way of helping you build character. If you look at her other plays, they're very wordy. I mean, I really like them because they're very wordy and they make great material for a reading. So if you think about something that has lots of physicality in it, lots of comedy in it that comes from how people, you know, slapstick. Slapstick is visual, right? I would not, there are plays that I would never consider to pick for a reading because all of the funny things that happen are to do with the physicality. And those things are written in the stage directions. Well, I'm gonna tell you now, reading them out in the stage directions is nowhere near as interesting. So if you see something, I don't know if you saw um, James Corden in the national theater shows that he did i think he did one man two governors oh, that's a really right. really funny scene where he gets two members of the audience to try and lift a chest so they're trying to lift a box not that type of chest here i can see your face <laughs> I, would, I would i would i didn't say it i didn't say you it you didn't need to say it i can see you anyway a box it's a wooden box 
right? So they're trying to lift a wooden box and James Corden can lift it himself, but he gets these two men to turn away and they both try lifting and they can't, they can't because he's standing on it, right? It's really funny. It's really funny for the people watching, watching these two quite, you know, strong guys, not able to pick up a box that James Corden made look completely light. Well, you know, once you put a human on top of it, that's incredibly physical. It's visual. It's really funny. How mm. would that work in a reading? Can you imagine? Now you stand on the box. <laughs> it's just not the same. Mm. So I like playwrights who are really into language and words, especially if we're going to do something like this. And I did look at more Lauren Gunderson works. So this one I thought was a really good choice because we don't always get the opportunity to have a cast of one. We don't often get to do something like this. Um, her other plays, Ada in the Engine, the Silent Sky, The Revolutionists, she has these amazing plays that feature women and female scientists, intelligent women, you know, not women who are there merely as a reflection to highlight some other person. Mm. You know, that happens a lot. If you look at structure things, sometimes one character is just a foil for the other character to highlight their brilliance. No, Michael Bay movies. <laughs> yeah. So she takes historical female characters and puts them in the spotlight and shows us what is important about them and the important things that they did. I mean, she tells stories, as you yourself said, she's a feminist. She tells stories about strong women, which mm -hmm. I love. And again, as I say, a lot of language. She loves Shakespeare. I mean, she's another play, The Book of Will. It's about here somewhere um, writing about the characters around William Shakespeare. So she does that. She likes to take historical settings and tell us truths about today. And that, you know, this whole concept of truth telling through storytelling, it's really important. So if the subject's hard, like domestic violence, if it's something taboo, if it's something we don't want to talk about, having a stage reading, something like this can help us to articulate the problem and help us to respond to it instead of the very difficult conversations that people try to have. Mm. 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 It's sort of the style actually reminded me a lot of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who has this sort of similar way of introducing something with a joke, making it seem extremely funny. And then the emotional punch is a lot more unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I think that's a very, very modern thing, actually. What you were saying about like women often being set up as sort of the foil for the uh, for other characters. Um, I still see examples of that these days. A handful of years ago, that was just all that women were doing. But I do think there's a lot more out there now that's that puts women centre stage. Yes. It's changing, at least. It is changing. And I think it's it's great that in America, that it's a female playwright who is the most produced playwright. Yeah. Because there are amazing. many, many more male playwrights and female playwrights mm. that we're aware of. And again, that's just, I mean, we know that through all sorts of writing. We don't have to go very far back. And the only books were written by men because that's how society was, or women giving themselves male names. And even mm. today, you know, I believe that Alex is a Harry Potter fan. I was listening to other yeah. podcasts. I believe that might be the only movie in the world or something that you've mm -hmm. seen, which amused me no end. So I think call back to other podcasts is a great idea. Back to improv. Um, <laughs> but Harry Potter was written by J.K. Rowling. Mm. Right? J.K. 
JK. Because the, um, what was it, the uh, publisher didn't want uh, boys to be turned off because it was written by a woman. Yeah, isn't that horrendous? <laughs> yeah. Utterly horrendous. Yeah. Um, it's not the young boy's fault, right? No. Because that's what we teach them. Hmm. Right. You know, the children, I mean, you work with children, the, the children aren't making all of this stuff up. It's what the adults are presenting to them. at their Yeah. Age. All right. And because it's plausible, we can't get out of this without some queer intersectional feminism. Yes, queen. Um, what are some of the queer feminist things that you saw in the text of the play? One thing I really liked is how she genders all these little things. She genders the tornado she genders a hypothetical dog like that's sort of sprinkled throughout the whole thing like she even brings it up I don't know why I think of it as a man but I do I think it's really cool that uh, people actually stop and think about hey why do I say he or she in this situation when uh, it's all just a construct of my mind yep it is fascinating so yes the storm one of the storms so she talks about a childhood experience and a story that her mother tells her and talks about the storm and how the storm was called Oliver. Of course, it was named after a man. So she makes these sorts of references to things about men that are different um, statistically than women. And that, I think, all comes back down to, it's pretty important in the play. I think it comes back down to the sort of violence that happens at home. She's very, I mean, she does say, of course, it's a man, a woman would never make a mess like that. So mm. she makes these points about the differences that we sometimes see in society between men and women and how men and women behave to certain situations. All right, so that, that comes up quite a bit. So yes, the dog, she calls the dog Hamlet, of course. <laughs> so yes, she sees it in her head as a boy dog, for whatever reason. Um, the other interesting thing, of course, is her perception Angela the character's perception of what people are going to think regarding the gender of a partner mm -hmm. so that appears in it right mm, yeah that was really relatable to me the part of oh the anxiety of uh oh should I say my partner is the same gender than me oh, how well do I know this person should I say this right now mm. a lot of people in the world who have that anxiety for a lot of different reasons as well and it's something I sort of tried to explore in Dr. Sebastian, the eye, that she sort of went to the, ther the um, therapist and was afraid that the therapist would think that she had problems with her sexuality, but that wasn't what she wanted dealing with. Yeah. Was the sort of message I was trying to get across. Yeah, so it's a very, it's a very difficult thing. And it's a very mm -hmm. difficult thing to know if you're in a safe enough space, mm. accepting enough space. Yeah. That you can just be honest. I have been uh, I have been impressed when I'm in spaces that are safe like that. So I used to do quite a few tech conferences and stuff. And one of the things that I loved about some of the tech communities is that you can be who you are. Mm. And you can easily, if you're a man, talk about your husband and stuff, and no one's going and the group that I was involved with there's no reaction. It's a perfectly normal part of life. Um, unfortunately, that is not necessarily uh, the world. And this play, when it says that it can be a person in any place, you, you can feel how American it is in places. You, she talks about Christianity through the play, talks about not making jokes about God in front of her mother and stuff. You can feel a certain type of judgment mm. that she feels exists 
in the people around her and how they're going to respond if she says a certain thing. So it's a, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, we're in Tokyo, so I don't know how different it is here. I don't know whether we're any safer. I was reading equities guidelines on say um, actors who are trans, things like that, that are, now we're starting to see people address some of these issues head on. They address head on the fact that some people are at more risk than other people in society. And that doesn't always come out. I was fascinated to read because it was an American thing again, and it's not, um, obviously I'm not from there. I was fascinated to read that they're tackling things like that for a trans performer to come to a space, you need to be careful about where the space is, how dark it is around, how visible they are in your production, because it's still not safe. Mm. And that's sad. And I don't know, what is it like in Tokyo? I mean, you do closet ball. And well, one thing that I uh that came up with doing closet ball online is that we're doing a lot of the online payments and with not just the trans community, but sometimes uh, uh, any queer person, they don't like the name they're born with. So they change it to something else. Like say, hypothetically, you're a gay boy and you're named after your homophobic father. Maybe you want to change it. Yep. So here I am uh, on my computer accepting online payments from a drag show. Oh, I have to see your dead name. So I'm just kind of Oh, close one eye, press OK on the payments. So, you know, that's one uh, unfortunate thing with the uh, pandemic is that uh, name safety with the queer community is um, it's not as secure as it used to be. Yeah. I feel generally a lot safer in Tokyo, though, than pretty much anywhere else I've ever been. Um, partly because everyone's seems too involved in their phones to pay any attention to me. Whereas I know there are definitely places in England, uh, you know, in, in some cities or parts of the countryside, where if I was walking along, someone would say something. You know, whereas people don't here. So I feel safer, but I think part of the reason I feel safer is because I am a tall foreigner. People don't know out here what they're going to get back from me. So they perhaps don't do it for that reason. Um, I, I always say I like being foreign in Japan, but I would not like being a Japanese person in Japan because then I would have to deal with a lot of social pressure and, um, you know, things about my sexuality that I just wouldn't, or would, it would take a lot more work to do. But um, Tokyo and Japan are both changing as well. Um, the younger um, queer community is a lot more open okay. and that's thrilling because one day they're going to be in power. It's going to be marvelous. One day when all the, the current politicians die in seven years. <laughs> exactly. It might not be for a long time. My mum says, why are you still over there if it's not very progressive? And I do think it is progressive. It's just very slow, but it is going in the right direction. Not as progressive as the UK. I know. Where you, have to I mean... wait, you have to wait 80 years to get some estrogen pills. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking... The UK, the UK where they mock people in the street if they look different. The UK yep. friends of mine have been attacked in the street just for mm -hmm. daring to dress differently than other people. Yeah. Those things horrify me. And I know they happen. I mean, they happen in all parts of the world, but it is horrific. Mm -hmm. I have been stunned. I was so excited about some of the, I'm from Belfast. I was excited about some of the changes um, whenever I went back over, but yeah, it's changing. 
And yes, there are now, you know, bars that are calling themselves gay bars in public without hiding the fact that that's what they were, you know, not an under the carpet, everybody who knows, knows kind of thing. Yeah. Actually saying it out loud, but still, still there's the aggression and violence against people who are queer and who are different. Mm. And that's really horrific. And I suppose pretty glad that gun violence in Belfast where I'm from is not a thing like it was when I was a child. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't hear of too many horrific stories, but I have been really appalled by mm. the way that people have been treated. Yeah. And what a pleasant way to come to the end of the <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Let's do it again sometime. The moral of the story, gun violence. Don't do it, kids. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds terrifying. We would like to invite you to watch our production. Can I say production legally or do I have to say reading? I would just invite people to see our stage reading because we keep wanting to say stage reading. It is, of course, a type of production. It's just we don't want people to get confused and think they're coming to see something with a set and they wonder Mm. why the set is black curtains at our space and how boring the director is because she couldn't would, think of anything i was expecting a magical basement with flying books yes you probably <laughs> were especially if you were alex yes i saw that in a film once the only film <laughs> the, only, the joke is i've seen 10 films and eight of them were harry potter I mean, seriously, Alex. (laughs) It's not, I do exaggerate. I've seen Star Wars as well. (laughs) You do exaggerate. He's seen 11 films. (laughs) Oh, what an exaggeration. I'm sure Taylor could give you a real exaggeration. That was not an exaggeration. Hey, uh, listener, don't be like Alex. Absorb as much media as you can, starting with Natural Shocks, a production by Tokyo International Players. You can buy your tickets at tokyoplayers.org. We have shows October 22nd and 23rd at 7 p.m. Also, we have two matinees, October 23rd and 24th at 2 p.m. We have limited seating with strict COVID safety measures in place for your safety. Did I say safety twice? A oh, bugger hell, we're almost done. Thank you. <laughs> You're just making sure it's a very safe environment. You just use very, very safe. Double the amount of safety. Safety, safety. <laughs> Put band-aids on your condoms safe. Okay, moving on. <laughs> it's silly o'clock we gotta end this thank you so much karen for giving us your time this evening um no matter how much money we have we all have limited time and you've decided to spend it with us thank you karen yay thank you taylor the show i was meant to be directing for like tokyo theater for children has been cancelled musical reviews i was doing have been cancelled so i suppose the reason i'm not like jumping with joy about my social media i mean you know Anytime I post something to Twitter, I lose followers. What can I say? Because <laughs> they see it and think, oh, God, why am I still following her? Yes. <laughs> <That's hardly anything. laughs> Absolutely. So, yes. Mm. I'm easy to find, though, because you've got my name and you know I live in Tokyo. So, actually, I do have blogs and websites and stuff. So, it's not difficult. Mm. <laughs> and to hear more about that, you can uh, subscribe to the newsletter, tokyoplayers.org. Scroll down to the bottom and you'll see a big, beautiful, enticing button and click subscribe to our newsletter. 
now that I have the vice president account, I get a notification every time someone unsubscribes. So a little piece of my heart breaks off. Oh, you unsubscribed. Oh, you unsubscribed. Oh. It's okay. Don't let your heart break. You have to remember that the most likely reason they're unsubscribing is, is not like my Twitter account. We're like, oh, that woman again. It's it's because they're most likely moved away from Tokyo. Mm. Oh, probably it. We've got, <laughs> got this transient community. Think like that, Taylor. Don't think that they read it and judged it. Exactly. <laughs> well, they never call me back because they just moved away. That's what I would think. All just Without telling you. <laughs> How dare they? North, where all my ex-boyfriends are just having a good time together without me. <laughs> oh, pet. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Pangolin Piano, how can we see and follow some of your stuff? I've got an Instagram called Pangolin Piano, which is meant to sort of have funny videos on it, but it just has pictures of me on holiday and things at the moment. <laughs> so if you're really into that, <laughs> go and check it out. <laughs> and you can follow us on Tokyo Closet Ball, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, if you would like to become a part of Tokyo Closet Ball, performer, crew, or designer, please send us a private message on one of those mediums. We accept people of all genders uh, and all sexualities and from any country in the world because we believe sincerely that vehicle... Fuck me, I almost got it right. You did. <laughs> 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 Wonderful until you got the vehicle. <laughs> we believe you're all cars. <laughs> you can drive anywhere you My want. My car sona, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking for people of all genders and all sexualities and from any country in the world because we sincerely believe that uh, empathy, because we sincerely believe that diversity is a vehicle for empathy. <laughs> My name has been Taylor. Thank you, Alex. And thank you, extra special guest, Karen Pauly. Everybody say bye. 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 <laughs> and enjoy this musical outro of... I'll put it in later. It's fine. <laughs> I love it. Something always brings me back to you It never takes too the moment I